chapter 3. This morning we're looking at verses 14 to 22. And we've been slowly working our way through the what's known, what's known as the seven churches of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Today we come to the last church, the church in Laodicea. And in many ways, sort of the heaviest of the letters, the, the most uh, critical, and yet so hopeful as well. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Let me read the text. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down on my father's, with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's a question for the morning. So I'd like to start off with a question. Here's a question for you to ponder. Is money evil? Is it sinful to possess wealth in, in large quantities even? You know, for, it sounds like kind of a simple question, but the more you think about it, I think it's a little more nuanced than perhaps at first blush. Because, you know, at one level, the answer, I think, is, is no. Money is not evil. I mean, it's just money. It's just a thing. It's not evil or good. Uh, so, no, money is not evil. But I think it poses some serious perils to our souls and our spiritual condition. Is, is having wealth and having resources sinful? Well, no, but I'm sinful. <laughs> My heart is sinful. And I know that when I have resources or wealth, there are certain temptations, strong temptations to which we are prone and I think to which we mostly fall into when we have uh, resources like that. That's the problem. You know, temptations, like temptations to be arrogant. It's easy if you have resources to kind of assume, well, you know, look what I've done and why can't other people do this? To even look down on people who are poor, to despise the poor and to, and to think, you know, why, why are you so lazy? If you just worked hard like I did, you'd be fine, like I am. Uh, it's tempting to become sort of isolated. You know, when you have resources, you can sort of live your life like a gated community. And so only have to associate with certain kinds of people and pay other people to do things and have to associate with them. And, and so it's easy to kind of segment yourself and kind of cocoon yourself. It's just, it's a temptation. Another temptation I think that comes along with resources is a temptation to be stingy, uh, to not be generous, which is kind of ironic because don't we often tell ourselves if I, 
I would give more if I just had a little more money. I mean, the reason I don't give more is because I don't have more. But if, if God were to bless me with more, I'm sure that I would give. But what happens? We get more, and so we raise our standard of living to match whatever our income level is. I mean, think about our country. We're a prosperous nation, even in this downturned economy. We still have incredible blessings that I think I usually take for granted, we usually take for granted. And yet you look at sort of Americans and, and what on the average Americans give to charitable causes, whether it be churches or other things, and it looks like, I mean, for all the statistics I found, it's something like 2 to 4%, which... That's not generous. I, mean, I don't know what standard you use to call that generous. That's not even the basic, good old-fashioned, biblical tithe. And, and so having more doesn't necessarily make you generous. There's a temptation to be stingy. But I think there's a, another temptation that comes along with having wealth. Not that wealth is evil, but it brings a temptation into our lives because of our sinful hearts. And there's a deeper temptation that in some ways is the deeper temptation underneath the other temptations. And that temptation is to think that we don't really need God. And we probably wouldn't say it out loud, but there's sort of this assumption that, well, if I'm prospering materially, if I'm prospering financially, I must be okay spiritually, religiously, morally with God. And yet those two can have sometimes nothing to do with each other. It's possible to be, you know, a king of industry, and yet in God's eyes, spiritually, to be a complete pauper in chapter 11 in terms of spiritual riches. Those two don't necessarily correlate at all. <clears throat> and, and when we become wealthy and we think we're doing well because, well, I'm comfortable and I can go on vacations and things like that, we assume we must be doing good spiritually. So what happens is money kind of acts like, it can act like sort of a huge Novocaine shot right into our soul. And we become numb and insensitive to our real spiritual plight in which we are in. Which is probably why Jesus said those really jarring words. It is easier, you know the saying, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's really hard to be free of that. And so here Jesus is speaking to a church in Laodicea that has fallen into this exact temptation. They have fallen prey. They're a prosperous church in a prosperous city. And they've fallen prey to this idea that they really don't need God, that they're okay, that they're doing fine. They must be okay because, well, look how we're making out. And Jesus has a wake-up call for them. And He has a wake-up call for us. Is this not a fitting letter for a church in Hingham, Massachusetts? It's a fitting letter for us. So let's hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to them and to us as well. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So before uh, Jesus uh, starts to speak to Laodicea, He always identifies Himself. I love what He says. He says three things about Himself. Number one, He's the Amen. You know, that's kind of a churchy word, right? Amen. It's actually just a Hebrew word. Amen, which means it is true, it is faithful. Something is amen if it's true or, or it's real. So what would happen in the worship of the church is something would be said from God's Word, something would be proclaimed about God's Word, and the people would respond by saying, you know what, that's God's Word, that's true. So they'd say, amen, which means it's true. So, so it's kind of sort of a very biblical way to respond to truth. When you hear truth and it strikes you, it's okay to say amen. And, hey, I give you permission. I know we are in New England, but 
you have permission from me if you need it. Uh, you don't need my permission, but whatever, if that helps. To say, you know what? That's true. Amen. To a song, to anything that God... You know, that's what we do kind of instead of clapping is we say, Amen. God's truth is here. And we affirm it as faithful. But notice, Jesus isn't saying Amen. He is Amen. He is the truth. He is truth itself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the God of Amen. You know, it's another way of saying Jesus is God. He is truth. God is truth. And so Jesus says, I'm Amen. He's also the faithful and true witness. He was the one who faithfully and truly witnessed to God all the way to the cross, even willing to give up His life for the sake of His witness. And He's the ruler of God's creation. He's the ruler of the creation. He's the beginning of the new creation. He is the King. So that's who's speaking to Laodicea. That's who has the right to say the words that we're about to read. The Amen, the faithful, true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And what does he say to the church in Laodicea? Well, he, he convicts them over their spiritual condition, which they don't sense because they've been numbed by their financial prosperity. Look what he says, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold, cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's a pretty graphic image. Jesus says, you make me want to hurl. I'm just going to spew, all right? Ooh, I, I taste you. And, you know, some of these other churches, yeah, they got this going for them, they got that. You just, blah, that's what I want to do. You're not hot, you're not cold. Look, you're not hot tea, and you're not cold iced tea. You just, who drinks room temperature tea? <laughs> you, right? Uh, you're like a, a, a Coke that was taken out of the fridge Put on the counter, the lid taken off, you know that noise, when you first open it? I love that sound. You know? (laughs) Leave the Coke on the counter. Leave it there for four days. All the fizz is gone. All the coldness is gone. And then four days later, imagine a friend comes to your house or a family member and they're really thirsty. They've been out working, shoveling snow or whatever. They're like, oh, you might have had that Coke. And you're like, go ahead, you know. And put. What are they going to do? Oh, right over the sink. I mean, who wants to drink a fizzless, lukewarm Coke? Uh, there was a city near Laodicea called Heropolis, which was known to have hot springs that were supposed to have medicinal purposes. There was another city near Laodicea called Colossae, from which to letter the Colossians. You may know that from the New Testament. Colossae was uh, known for its cold springs. And so you could go there to get a cold drink. You'd go to Heropolis to get a a hot medicinal bath, but Laodicea, what they have? Lukewarm. Archaeologists have found uh, aqueduct systems that were used in Laodicea to pipe water from sort of a distant spring all the way to the city. And by the time I got there, it was lukewarm. Jesus is like, you guys taste just like the water you drink. It's lukewarm. I just want to spit it out. It's not useful for anything. It reminds me of uh, another saying Jesus said, different metaphor, but I think the same point. When Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's not good for anything except to be thrown onto the ground and trampled by men. 
So you just don't have any flavor. You don't have any taste. You're not good for anything. There isn't fruit coming out of you. Because notice, ultimately, Jesus is really commenting on their deeds. He says, your deeds are lukewarm. There isn't fruit coming out of your life that's pleasing to me. I'm, I'm looking. I'm tasting. Nothing. So I'm going to hurl. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. <clears throat> and what did that mean? Why were they lukewarm? Was, was it that made them so tasteless? What had sort of ruined their spiritual flavor as a congregation? Why were, why were their deeds so flat and not fizzy and, and energizing? Well, they had fallen prey to the worship of money. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. The problem was not even that they had prosperity, but that they had fallen prey to that most dire of temptations that comes with money, which is to think, I must not need God. That's how they'd come to believe, uh, whether they wanted to admit it or not. So formally, outwardly, they were worshippers of Jesus, but functionally, their God was really their prosperity. You know, we all worship something. Everyone has a religion. You know, even if you're an atheist or an agnostic, you have a religion. You may not have a church building for it, but we all worship something. Something in our lives functions in the, the God-shaped vacuum inside all of us. And, and whatever that is that we look to for our identity, our hope, our confidence, our meaning, our security, that's what God does. And for some people, that's money. For some people, it's their reason and intellect. And, and for some people, it's Christ. What is it that you worship functionally? What's your religion? Everyone has a religion, even if you think you're not religious. That's what I would laugh when people say, I'm not religious. I'm like, yes, you are. You just need to admit it. <laughs> what is it that you trust in? And so outwardly, they would say, Jesus. But actually, it was their resources and their God, which was money. Um, and we know from history that Laodicea was a very prosperous town. So we know that what we read here in the letters matches historically. Uh, Laodicea wasn't originally a prosperous town. It's kind of sort of just another city there in Asia Minor. But in 166 B.C., the Romans took over that part of the world. They took over Laodicea. And the Romans began investing in Laodicea. Uh, they started sending people there. People started moving in. Resources started coming in. And it really blossomed as a financial center. Laodicea was on a major sort of north-south trade route and an east-west trade route. And it was right there at the center of the trade routes. So a lot of money and a lot of goods came through there. Uh, and the Romans slowly built it up as a kind of banking center. And so, you know, when you walk through downtown Boston, you go to the financial district and you see the big buildings. You just have a sense important money decisions are made here. Well, that's sort of perhaps how Laodicea was. There was a banking center. It was known for its prosperity. It was also became prosperous because they had some important uh, wool production, garment production. They were famous for this kind of black wool garment and, and cloth that they produced. Um, so it was a very prosperous town. Archaeologists have excavated it. They found a stadium. They found not one but two uh, amphitheaters, there's a gymnasium, there's a nice big public fountain in the center of town. I mean, this was a nice town. Perhaps the most uh, uh, telling indication of how wealthy Laodicea was was in 60 A.D., which was about 35 years before Revelation was written. Uh, in 60 A.D., there was a big earthquake that hit Laodicea, and it, it ruined a lot of the city. And so the Roman Empire came to Laodicea, and they said, we have funds to help you rebuild your city. You know what the Laodiceans said? 
no thanks, we can fund our own rebuilding. There was a one city that said, we don't need imperial funds to do this. We got so much, thanks, we'll rebuild our own city. You know, I don't need you, Rome. We can handle it. And just as the city 35 years earlier had said to Rome, no thanks, we're all set, we need no thing from you. So the same spirit had come into this church. And now they are saying to God in verse 17, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. They'd fallen prey to that temptation that comes with prosperity or anything else we trust in when we look to those things as our functional deity. And so that's where the Laodiceans were. And as a result, man, it just made their faith lukewarm. No fizz, no taste, no refreshment, no heat. Just kind of lukewarm faith, sort of going through the motions. No zeal. Nothing for the Lord. Just kind of an externalized Christianity, but without any life-giving power behind it. A form of godliness, but denying its power. And so Jesus says, hey, look, you can fool other people, but I can taste you. You guys have lost, you've become lukewarm. Have you ever been in a lukewarm church? Have you ever been lukewarm in your own faith journey for a season? Where, where something has just gotten hold of your soul that you thought would be refreshing, but instead it's been like a python. It's just wrapped around your soul and constricted the life out of it. And your zeal for the Lord is low. And yeah, you're going through the Christian motions, but, but, but there's no life behind it. There's no living relationship with Christ that's producing fruit. Have you ever been in that place? Have you ever been in a church that's like that? You know, what is a lukewarm church like? Um, it's certainly not a zealous church. It's certainly not a church that's really going for it to live with Christ. I mean, it's just kind of, hey, enough religion to be respectable, but not so much religion that we really take this stuff seriously and actually start living differently. It's the kind of church that instead of being a committed community of disciples following Jesus, it's more of a kind of a country club, you know, a place to be seen, to see, sort of the happening place to be, but, but not really a community of disciples willing to sacrifice and serve for Christ. Uh, it's a kind of kind of church and the kind of religion where children are get enough religion to be decent, but not so much that they actually want to become missionaries or something crazy like that. Not that much religion, just enough to be well raised so that they stay out of the big problems. Uh, this kind of lukewarm religion, speaking of missions, is probably not an evangelizing faith, because you know you talk about what you're excited about. And if you're not excited about the Lord, you're not going to talk about the Lord. If your faith and your zeal for Jesus is kind of in a lukewarm state, you're not going to be fizzing over talking about Him. That's what evangelism is. And besides, you know, if you're doing evangelism, who knows who might come into the church? You could get riffraff in the church, you know. I mean, if you take this outreach stuff seriously. And then you could come to church one day and they're in your pew with some people you don't know. And it's like, lovey, who's in my pew? <laughs> Lovey, call the ushers. We have a problem. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, do you know who I am? This is my pew. Uh, a lukewarm church wants preaching that's inspiring, but not preaching that's prophetic. It wants music that's tasteful and well-performed, but not music that's heartfelt and passionate and true. Uh, a lukewarm church is a conservative church, not a risk-taking church that trusts the Lord. And I would say most of all, 
I know from lukewarmness in my own life, a lukewarm church and a lukewarm Christian is not a praying Christian. And certainly not a fasting and praying church. (laughs) Because if I have everything I need, what do I need to pray for? And then fasting, I mean, gee, that sounds like self-deprivation. I mean, why would I do that? I mean, it's all about having everything I need. And so we become lukewarm in our faith. There's no zeal, there's no fruit, there's no evidence of life and fellowship with Christ. And Jesus says, that is not what I want. And perhaps worst of all, and we mentioned this already, a lukewarm faith is blind to its own spiritual condition. We think that we're fine because we have these things outwardly, but we don't recognize our inward spiritual bankruptcy. Look at the second half of verse 17. Well, verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's like a a, a parallel bizarro universe. One universe, you're doing great, but in the spiritual universe, you're you're like a, a naked, poor refugee with nothing and you're blind and you're lost. You know, the same person, two different worlds, the physical world and the spiritual world, so disconnected and separate. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in His parable in Luke chapter 12. Put a bookmark here in Revelation 3. I just want to point out this parable to you. Luke chapter 12. It's on page 1031 in the Pew Bible. Where Jesus warned about how when money becomes our God, when money becomes our purpose, we become insensible to our spiritual condition. Luke chapter 12, verse 16, page 1031. And then we'll go back to Revelation. Luke 12:16. And He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And He thought to Himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then He said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. So in reality, this was his God. This was his life. This was his meaning and purpose. You know, God's blessed me financially, so what do I do with it? Well, I just build a big jacuzzi and swim in it, you know, and just live in the bubbles. You know, it's comfortable here. And, and that's my life. I, I'll simply enjoy for myself these good gifts. And so I must be fine. I must be set. I'm going to have a great life. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. That's strong words. You don't want, it when, you don't want to have God say to you, you fool. <laughs> you fool. You idiot. Stupid. Hey, dummy. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? You know, what about your eternal destiny? Yeah, you may be rich financially, but you're going to stand before God, and what are you going to have to say for yourself? Do you think God gives any care whatsoever about how much money we have? Do you think that impresses God? So verse 21, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. That's the purpose of human life is to be rich toward God. Why are we here on earth? Why are we using oxygen? Why are we making a carbon footprint? Um, you know, Why are we here? What is our purpose? And the purpose of human life is easy to know. It's not really that difficult. We're here for Him. We're here to glorify Him 
love God, worship God, delight in God, savor God, reflect God, love people because we love God. I mean, that's why we're here on earth. So whoever you are and whatever God has given you, it's God's investment in you to glorify Him. So if you're an artist or a dancer or a painter or a singer, that's a gift. Use it to glorify God somehow. Uh, if you're a baker, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, if you're a, a carpenter or a guy who's, or a woman who's really good with numbers or you're great at leading people and organizations, whatever skills and abilities God's given you, whatever intellect, glorify Him with it. And, and if you have money, glorify Him with your money. The money's not evil. It's just one more tool that's to be used to glorify Him, not an, an idol that should draw our worship. And so that's what money's for. It's to worship God and, and yeah, to enjoy life, but to really enjoy life by enjoying who God is with our wealth. I love John Wesley's uh, teaching on wealth. It, it, it's so pithy, but it's so, I, I feel like, poignant. He had three lines on wealth. He said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Yeah, I, like, I can remember that. Make all you can. Yeah, make money. It's great. God's give, Some people... I mean, look, some people have a gift from God. They can make money. That's the gift. A gift among some. And so use your gift. Make all you can. And then save all you can. Don't just keep, well, if I make more money, I keep ratcheting up my lifestyle. And now I need to sell, you know, the 80-foot boat to get the 180-foot boat. And, you know, don't just keep ratcheting it up. Save all you can. And then give all you can for His glory to the poor, to the church, to missions, to those in need. You know, however God leads you. Do it with a joyful heart. That's what worship is. That's why we give financially to the church, not because it's a duty, but because it's part of our love for God and worship of His glory. But this guy had lost all that. He didn't see it. Instead of worshiping God, he worshiped his money and his possessions. He turned the gift into an idol. And that's what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, going back to verse 17. You don't realize. You don't see it. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And so we need God to wake us up and show us our spiritual condition. Do you recognize today, do I recognize today, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you, do you own that? Do you recognize that you are bankrupt in and of yourself before God? And that you need a loan? <laughs> you need a bailout. From heaven, spiritually and morally, we're impoverished and we're broke and we owe a great debt to God which we cannot repay because of our sin. And so, how do we become wealthy spiritually? How, how do we become prosperous in the way that really matters for eternity? And the answer is that we find here in Revelation is that we have to go to Jesus. Because Jesus Himself is the treasure. He is the treasure. He has what we need and so Jesus commands them, this poor, blind church, prospering financially, destitute spiritually. He says, people, it's time to come back and make some money here in the right way. They're spiritually become enriched and to become prosperous. And so he gives them three commands. The first one's in verse 18. First command is this. Jesus says, buy from me. Command number one, buy from me. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. It's interesting, by the way, that each of those three things, gold, clothing, and salve, were things that 
that Laodicea was famous for. I already mentioned the gold, the banking center. I already mentioned the clothing. They were a woolen production center. Another thing I didn't mention was they also had a famous school of ophthalmology there. They actually had a famous Greek ophthalmologist. I didn't write down his name and I couldn't remember it because it's some weird ancient Greek name. But they had a famous ophthalmologist there. They produced something in that area called Phrygian powder. It was sort of a famous medical ointment for the eyes. And so if you had eye problems, go to Laodicea. So isn't it interesting that Jesus picks those three things that they brag about and boast in and says spiritually, I'm the only one who can give you those things. I am the treasure, Jesus says. I can clothe you in the righteous white robes of salvation. I'm the one who can open your eyes through the salve. But it's not Phrygian powder. It's the Holy Spirit I can give you to open your eyes. Jesus is the one to whom we need to go to get these things. It's Christ Himself to whom we need to turn. And we need to buy from Him. What does it cost, by the way? It costs everything and nothing. It costs everything, but Jesus paid it. He paid the price with His own blood on the cross. And therefore, to us, it's free. It's a free gift of salvation. All we have to do is declare our need. Look at verse 19. Those of you... Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. I have to be able to come to God and say, I am spiritually blind, impoverished, naked. I cannot make myself right before You. I need what You can give me, Jesus. And so ultimately, it's about coming to Christ Himself and receiving the gift of salvation that He has. And even as Christians, when we've lost our way, to keep coming back to Jesus and saying, I need you, Christ. I need you in my life again today on a daily basis. So we need to buy from Jesus. You've been shopping in the wrong place. It's time to come to Jesus to get what you really need for your souls and your spirit. Number two, we need to dine with Jesus. Look at verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Perhaps one of the most famous verses in the book of Revelation. One of those verses kids memorize in Sunday school. Perhaps Have you seen the painting, Jesus standing at the door and knocking? There's sort of a famous Christian painting and it's Jesus standing there. You know, typical Jesus, blue eyes and the blue sash and all that. Um, that uh, you know, he's, Is that sort of there at the door and knocking? And it's this sort of poignant moment of Him rapping at the door, wondering, well, the person... And you don't know who's inside, but it's sort of like, who's going to come and open up the door and let Him in? And so this is a famous verse. And it's such a beautiful picture of what Christianity is at its core, which is a living relationship with the living Christ. I think sometimes we think of Christianity as either a bunch of rules or a philosophy or some weird religious rituals, and we miss that it's about Jesus who was raised from the dead and us knowing Him and fellowshipping with Him. It's powerful. That's real Christianity. I don't know what you've tasted Maybe you've tasted Christianity before and you spat it out. Could it be that you were tasting the lukewarm version and you never dined with Christ and learned that real Christianity is about a living relationship and communion with the Lord Jesus? And I just want to point out one more thing here before we look at the third command. Do you notice that verse 20 is written to Christians? I think sometimes Christians use that as an evangelistic verse telling people who don't know Jesus, hey, Jesus is at the door of your heart. Just open up and let Him into your heart. But notice, and while that may be a valid application, we could discuss that, notice that this was written to the believers. 
In other words, it's possible to be a Christian and to grow into a state of lukewarmness so that we're not living in that vital communion with the Lord. And I had to ask myself when I looked at this verse, does that image of dining with Christ, does that exemplify what my own relationship with Christ is like right now? You know, Would I say, oh yeah, that's a metaphor that clicks with what I am doing in my own walk with the Lord? Or has it been months since I've really talked to Him, since I've listened to what He had to say, meditating on His Word, and then prayed to Him, and I talked to Him, and through that, through that intimate study of His Word, communing with Christ, with His people, have I really been communing with the Lord, or has my relationship with Him just become dry and formalized and routine? When's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you've opened His Word for yourself? Not because you're supposed to read the Bible because you're a Christian, but because I want to commune with the Savior through His Word. That's the motivation. So, buy from Christ. Dine with Christ. And then the last command, and this one is tough to get my my own head around. Reign with Christ. Look at verse 21. To Him who overcomes... To the person who will repent of their spiritual poverty and come to Jesus and through daily reliance upon Him overcome. To Him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with Me on My throne just as I overcame and sat down with My Father on His throne. I almost can't even believe those words. They're so great. If that wasn't in the Bible and you told me that was the truth, I wouldn't believe you. If I couldn't read it for myself, like reign with him on his throne, I, I'm I'm blown away enough that he would die for me to save me from my sins. I'm blown away enough that I have hope of eternal life in heaven. But to say that through Christ's sacrifice for me, I can reign on his throne with him, I, it's beyond it's beyond words. And so rather than trying to describe it, let me just. Let me just read a little section from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If, if you haven't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, you have a task. You need to leave immediately after the service. Go to Barnes & Noble's <laughs> and buy The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You, this is just sort of basic. You need to read this book. But you probably know the story about Aslan the lion who represents Jesus and this other world called Narnia and these four children, uh, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, who get sucked from our world into Narnia. And there in Narnia, there's an evil witch who represents Satan who has sort of put the whole of Narnia under a spell where it's always winter but never Christmas. And finally, Aslan comes back and he breaks the spell. And there's a great battle as Aslan the lion and these four children trusting in him lead all the Narnians in a great battle against the witch and her monsters. And they defeat the witch. And I know I'm kind of ruining the whole book here, but they defeat the... <laughs> Still need to read it. They defeat the witch and they, they overcome. And after the battle's over, they all go to this place called Care Paravel, which is sort of the royal residence of the kings. And it says, The next day was solemn. For then in the great hall of Care Paravel, that wonderful hall with the ivory roof and the west door all hung with peacock's feathers and the eastern door which opens right onto the sea, in the presence of all their friends and to the sound of trumpets, Aslan solemnly crowned them and led them onto the four thrones amid the deafening shouts of Long live King Peter! 
Long live Queen Susan. Long live King Edmund. Long live Queen Lucy. Once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. Bear it well, sons of Adam. Bear it well, daughters of Eve, said Aslan. And through the eastern door, which was wide open, came the voices of the merman and the mermaids swimming close to the castle steps and singing in honor of the new kings and queens. And so the children sat in their thrones. And scepters were put into their hands. And they gave rewards and honor to all their friends. And that night there was a great feast in Caraparavel and revelry and dancing and gold flashed and wine flowed to Him who overcomes. Would you please stand? And let's sing together of this one who overcomes. There's a treasure great in beauty Far surpassing earth's great wealth He is Jesus, Prince of glory Source of all grace, peace and hell There's a fountain ever flowing Satisfying all who dream
We have our prayer team over here in the alcove. They love to pray with you after the service if they could, confidentially about anything going on in your life. And uh, just a reminder again, tonight, 5 p.m. is our 5 p.m. prayer and discussion service. We discuss the sermon. Pray. That will be up here in room 24. Tuesday night is uh, our, our first special business meeting where we're going to present the whole building project in detail and vote on the purchase of this property here. On your way out, uh, there's little uh, packets like this that talk about, that sort of give the layout of the project. If you'd like to read that in advance, maybe just take one per family so we have enough. And hopefully we won't run out. But uh, this gives all the financials and drawings and all that kind of stuff and the mission of the church. So we'd love for you guys to have that as well. Uh, Seth, would you come and close the service in prayer and bless the, the princes and princesses of the king? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your victory. Thank you that you plan to win your victory through us. Strengthen us with faith. Remind us of your grace, your presence, your power, your love. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen.